0: Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past.
1: Think we can meditate and wonder whether our descendants, because I think they'll still be here, what they will think about us, and let us hope that at least they will give us
0: I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show we have Professor Andrew Grable. Andrew serves as the director of the William P. Clements Center for Southwest Studies and is a professor of history at Southern Methodist University. Born and raised in San Antonio, he earned his Ph.D. at Princeton. His focus is on the North American West, and he's written several books on the United States' expansion across the continent and the collision and cooperation of cultures that resulted. Today we're speaking to him about a re edition or republication of a classic book called The Great Plains, written uh, in nineteen thirty one by a gentleman named Walter Prescott Webb. Uh, Andrew, welcome to History Six O Five. Thanks so much for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Glad to have you on the podcast and Um, You didn't write the book, but I wonder if you could go into um, some of the—you did furnish the introduction, and I wonder, too, if you prompted or what brought uh, the University of Nebraska to uh, republish the book.
1: Well, let me start with the uh, second half of that question, which is my favorite. So um, I've become pretty good pals, or have actually been for quite a while pretty good pals with the editor-in-chief there, a wonderful woman named Bridget Berry, and i I've used the Great Plains, Webb's book, any number of times, um, although it's fallen a bit out of favor, something that I hope maybe we can revisit a little later in the conversation. But um, uh, I said to her that I was working on uh, sort of, you know, for you know, some perspective journal, um, kind of a, a reappraisal of the Great Plains as we close in on its 100th year anniversary um, of its publication in 1931. Um, and I said, hey, you know, once I finish this, could it maybe have Second Life as an introduction to a new edition Of the book because the one that that Nebraska publishes, um, the last edition, um, or maybe it's their only edition, dates to 1981 and it is still typeset um, in the manner that it was by Ginn and Company, which was a Boston based publishing firm that brought out the book in 1931. So it's still typeset in this very old-fashioned kind of way. Um, uh, So the design, I think, needed an update. Um, Bridget was particularly unfond of the the cover, which has a certain kind of late 70s, early 80s look, uh, and it sort of has a combine silhouetted against Uh a prairie sky, um, you know, in a cornfield. And so I think she was at least as excited for the possibility of updating the cover image as she was about (laughs) adding my introduction. But Those two things together, plus a little support from the Clement Center for Southwest Studies, Uh uh, which I direct, um, got us thinking about, you know, kind of – I don't want to oversell it, but – Maybe a a, sort of a dramatic overhaul of the book, in which it was reset and which it got a new index, obviously because the page numbers differed. um, With this introduction and a lovely new cover, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the artist, but a really um, you know a lovely painting of the planes. I think is really really pretty arresting. So that is how this collaboration came to be, and the book appeared. Uh, I think it was in August of this past year, and I'm right. hopeful that it'll justify um, the uh, the effort that both uh, Bridget and I put into it. We'll see.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, as you write in the introduction, just to kind of finish up there, the what is it that you kind of you helpfully set the scene about the meaning of the book? Um, uh, and it's it's it might be hard to imagine in some regards that uh, prior to uh, Webb's. Uh, publication of this book in 1931, that the Great Plains may not have really had a sense of itself and its own history. Is that Would that be the case when the book came out?
1: I probably wouldn't go quite that far. Um, I think there were certainly uh, historians who had spent time thinking about the Plains. Um, but in terms of thinking about what made the Plains distinct, say, from the west of the rest of the West. Um, I think Webb is the person who, uh, that is Mm -hmm. the chief contribution of the book. Um, And, you know, it made quite an impression on me when I was in graduate school, although it was probably less the book itself and more, um, some smaller sort of more public facing pieces that he wrote. Webb uh, really prided himself on being uh, an excellent pro stylist, which he certainly was. And he wrote pretty often for Harper's magazine and um, a, A pretty nice distillation of the book, which is big, you know, 500 pages, um, can be found in a piece that he wrote in 1957 in Harper's. So, you know, a quarter century after the Great Plains. But the ideas, um, you know, there uh, are in miniature, which is that... um, you know the, the title of that piece is "The American West: Perpetual Mirage," and it, it's really about about the plains. And you know, Webb makes the argument that uh, that the plains are a distinct region; um, that they are defined by their aridity. They comprise the vast bulk of what we think of as the American West, and then. The argument that Webb makes, which you know we can certainly discuss, it's got um, it's provocative. I think it's got some merit, but it's got some pretty serious limitations as well is that it's the fact uh, of the environment of the Great Plains, which was determinative Mm -hmm. of the Anglo-American settlement um, that uh, sort of followed, starting really sort of in the 1850s and 60s, and accelerating, of course, after the Civil War during Reconstruction. That's really kind of the, the chief contribution of the book. And what's You know, I think causes a lot of people to reckon with it even today, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that they might have some misgivings about, say, it's environmental determinism. uh, It's pretty unabashed racism and so on. But I, uh, I wrote the piece because I believe that the book, despite those um, rather considerable shortcomings, still deserves to be reckoned with.
0: Yeah, when he's approaching this, uh, what's his background? Talk to us a little bit about uh, Walter Prescott Webb and. He's clearly a Texan. That that rings through. He um, is a Texan. And it's <laughs> fair to say
1: that his focus in this book is really on the southern and central plains. That's certainly been one of the criticisms right of other Western or Great Plains historians is that, you know, he doesn't really consider uh, the Dakotas, for instance, doesn't give, um, you know, my former state of Nebraska much due, and certainly he doesn't um, cast his eyes at all above the 49th parallel. Of course, the Plains extend, you know, well into the prairie provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Um, But Webb, uh, his biography is actually really well known, and in one piece that I did a lot of reading, um, secondary reading, for the most part, in preparing this introduction that I wrote, which origi- I should say it originally appeared um, in reviews in American History. Uh, I think in 2021, okay. and I am very thankful to uh, Ari Kelman and Rose Curtin, uh, who edited the piece and made it a lot better, um, as well as various friends that I that I shared it with. But somebody um, that I you know uncovered and quoted said that, you know, Webb was probably the most studied historian by other historians than, you know, anybody except for, you know, Cotton Mather or maybe Theodore Roosevelt of course had, you know yeah. was at one time more famous for being a historian than a politician.
0: Sure.
1: But Webb's story is really interesting. He grew up in um in Texas, uh, of parents um, who were uh, sort of, you know, post Civil War refugees from Mississippi. Um, Webb grows up in East Texas, but um, when he's a young boy, his parents moved to uh, an area called the Cross Timbers, which is sort of, you know, kind of 100 miles west of Fort Worth. It's pretty broken, pretty dry country. And Webb really saw that as formative um, in his family's history, but really in the way that he approached um, both sort of kind of the story of his own life, but um, perhaps especially the story of his career as a historian. He wanted to understand that place and those people, and that's what he dedicated himself to. Um, But he had a very hard scrabble upbringing, and there's a great story. Again, there's just so much available about Webb's um, own biography, uh, and I would commend to any listeners. um, uh, He had an unpublished manuscript available in the Center for American History at the University of Texas that he called the Texans story. Uh-huh. a historian named Michael Collins um, and people have used that manuscript for for decades um, in you know probing Webb's life and career. but a historian named Michael Collins, um, the brilliant thing which was to actually annotate and edit it, um, and have it published by the University of Oklahoma Press mm-hmm. uh, so that it could actually be widely disseminated. That came out just a couple of years ago. so Webb's kind of having you know a moment of sorts. Um, and anyway, in that in that book Webb uh, or in that manuscript which has become this published book now, um, Webb, uh, Webb describes how his life really turned on what he calls you know uh, a thin dime that his mother gave him to subscribe to I'm blanking on the name of it, but sort of a Southern literary magazine. And uh, at one point in 1904, he wrote a pretty plaintive letter uh, to the editor. It's called the Sunny South was the name of okay. the uh, of the journal. Um, where at that time he would have been, I think he was born in 1888, so he would have been 16. And he writes sort um, of this plaintive letter to the editor, uh, talking about his you know very hard scrabble upbringing and how much he wanted to be a writer, but he had no idea how to do so. And as it happens, um, this is really a rather extraordinary moment, Um, a Brooklyn toy manufacturer named William Ellery Hines spots this letter, writes to Webb, and it's a miracle. You have to read the, the book that Collins edited, Webb's manuscript, about how Heinz's letter from Brooklyn actually finds its way to uh, to to Webb in you know in the cross timbers, um, but basically kind of offering him encouragement, sending him some additional books and magazines to read, okay. and ultimately subsidizing his undergraduate education at the University of Texas. Wow. Um, it's a it's a truly life changing moment for Webb um, that he remembered until his last days, mm-hmm. and as he described it, Webb said it was. As far as he knew, Webb was not a religious man. Um, the closest act to Christian charity um, of which he was ever aware. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, let's let's get into the book a little bit and what uh, what are some of the things that he makes? It's it's uh, he goes way back, you know, and he's starting with uh, the American Indians who inhabit the Great Plains, as well as the Spanish, the French, and then the Americans, uh, and how it changes each one of these peoples with the probably the the most well, what comes through in the book is his admiration for tribes like the Comanche and the Kiowa and so forth that learn how to live and perhaps even thrive on the Great Plains when everyone else doesn't. Particularly the Spanish, I think he he makes the point the Spanish kind of stop Spanish uh, colonialism and civilization kind of ends at the plains because they can't defeat it. Right. What are what are some of the things that um groups have to change about their culture, their civilization, if they're going to thrive on the Great Plains. I think that's the kind of the theme of the whole book is uh, monitoring that change.
1: Right. Well, Webb, you're right. Um, Admires uh, Native peoples of the Plains inordinately. In fact, at one point, quite late in his life when he's on, um, uh, I think it was maybe sort of a lecture circuit that took him of all places to Alaska, mm-hmm. um, and he you know, was writing his, um, his, uh, his second wife. Um, his first wife had died, and he talked about, um, through the context of a wider letter, just the thrill that um, the Plains Indians, have, have, their cultures have always given him. But of course, it's a complicated uh, relationship that he's got to, uh, to Native peoples in that um, he does see the Plains Indians as uniquely adapted to the region um, because of their mastery of the horse, because of their ability to handle a bow and arrow from horseback, because of their ingenuity in hunting bison, um, and so on. Um, so he does admire them, and you're quite right, that he sees in their civilizations and their culture. Um, sort of strengths and adaptations that permit them to thrive where other peoples, the Spanish and the French particularly, um, do not. But at the same time, you know, web traffics in what were some pretty hoary stereotypes. So, you know, for instance, um, he, uh, I think he's quite fascinated by the Comanche, particularly, as, mm-hmm. you know, one might expect, somebody who grew up in North Texas um, where the Comanche had once a, Part of the Comancheria it was there in the, in the area where Webb grew up, and as he liked to say that you know that the fires i mean metaphorically speaking the, the campfires of Indians and pioneers were were still warm when the when he and his family showed up in the in the in the late nineteenth century um, but he also, you know, describes them as particularly fierce and savage. So it's kind of a, it's a grudging admiration of sorts. And he definitely considers them to be savage. Um, but he has an admiration for, for Plains people, um, for Native peoples sort of more broadly, the so-called sedentary Pueblo peoples of the Southwest, Mm -hmm. Um, he has far, far fewer good things to say. In fact, you know, the most infamous line in the book is that he's comparing those Pueblo peoples, particularly um, the descendants of, you know, peoples of the Southwest um, and sort of their intermarriage with um, sort of Spanish settlers and sort of uh, kind of, you know, produces the, you know, kind of Mexican-Americans of the Southwest today when talking about, um, the sort of the, the the ancestral heritage of those peoples, those sedentary Pueblo peoples of the Southwest, and comparing them to to Plains Indians, he says their blood is as to ditch water, um, which is really just hmm. it's a line that you know uh, I, I, hard to believe um, that it uh, got past as editor then, but it really makes you recoil today. And as um, as another scholar of the region has said. That's a line that you know many um, sort of historians of Mexican America can quote chapter and verse, yeah. um, and is kind of disqualifying in terms of sure. the of the book itself. And I get that I I, I really do. The, we should talk a bit more about um, about sort of my ju- my judgment um, or the basis for my judgment about Webb's racism, which I think you know really merits some um, some attention. But yes, he sees the Indian Plains peoples as particularly well adapted. Although he's most familiar with the groups of the central and southern plains—the Comanche, the Kiowa, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho—much less familiar with groups like the Sioux or the or the Blackfeet, or even you know groups in the um sort of in that sort of middle uh, central plains region. Um, but the great triumph for him and what he really celebrates is the conquest of this region by Anglo-American pioneers, quite literally his forebears, yeah. and what they are able to do. Um, and that basically it takes. Their ingenuity um, for people of European descent to be able to carve out an existence on the plains. It's not really until the mid 19th century. It takes about you know 300 years for peoples of European ancestry to be able to survive and even thrive on the Great Plains. And he attributes a lot of that to, to Anglo American ingenuity, um, particularly in the guise of three institu- of, of, of three inventions that he sees as, as pivotal.
0: Yeah, so let's let's get into that a little bit. He has this great line about um, the people of the East, Eastern United States. Uh, their civilization rests on three things: land, water, and timber. And uh, of course, on the Great Plains, we lack two of those things. And so he kind of builds the Great Plains civilizations up on these um, innovations, as you talk about. What what do you or what is his um, argument about what replaces the uh, water and timber it's uh tough to use it well
1: right and that 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 quotation is is great and it's rich because he says you know something about you know land water and, and timber right and that you remove you know two of those um from this three-legged stool and no wonder it toppled over in temporary failure yeah. a great story that i don't i know i didn't include in the text that i might not have even slipped footnotes although i hope i did is that you know webb confesses years later um in that uh in that unpublished manuscript that eventually becomes um, a Texan's story. Michael Collins renamed it. Um, the Texan story sounded pretty presumptuous. But <laughs> that Webb confesses that he actually got that from an undergraduate in one of his classes.
0: Oh. That it really
1: wasn't. It, it, it's, it's great. He claims great. He does not say that in the um, in the Great Plains, I believe. I think yeah. it's only, you know you know, some years later that he confesses that it wasn't really his formulation. I'm sure he dressed it up, but I think it was the idea yeah. uh, that he thought was brilliant and really um, yeah, for him was uh, was powerfully insightful.
0: Well, it's uh, further evidence our students are often smarter than us. So uh, how true? <laughs> how very true.
1: So, um, so what Webb says is that in order for Anglo Americans to be able to carve out an existence on the plains, a uh, number of of you know of, of things have to go right. But he points to three critical innovations: um, uh, the six shooter, yeah. uh, barbed wire. Uh, and the windmill.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm happy to go through each of those if you'd like, or yeah, um, in terms I think, of how Webb characterizes them.
0: Uh, yeah, his, his laudatory, expansive prose about Sam Colt is yes. rare to see uh, these days. Um, and I wonder if you could go through his, his very careful discussion of— well, careful is not quite the word—, right, word verbose discussion of the six-shooter. Th- he's, sure. ha- he's having a sure. lot of fun with that, and I enjoyed reading about it. Um, I think it was a, a, a good, uh, interesting part of his book. Uh, what does the six-shooter do to stand up the civilization on the Greek Plains?
1: Well, let me, let me back up just a moment sure. and say it's actually really his insight about the six-shooter that is the genesis of the book, or at least that's how he described it years later. And this is something else. Um, you know, if the story about William Ellery Hines and uh, the, the, his largesse and allowing Webb to go to UT and get educated, that's a formative story um, in Webb's narrative. Another really important story that pretty much anybody who's spent any time thinking about Webb knows is that. Um, he claims that you know his idea for the book, his understanding of the region, you know, came to him of a moment on a cold, rainy February night in 1922. He was listening to the rain pound on the the tin roof of the pretty meager accommodations that um, that he shared with his wife. He was a um, a lowly master student at UT. He was writing about the Texas Rangers, but. It was sort of for whatever reasons um, that evening. Uh, it dawned on him that it was not sort of the you know the Winchester repeating rifle that had won the West. It was actually the six shooter, and that is because the six shooter is um, uh, is a pistol, obviously, that can be fired. Ra- I guess actually he was talking about rifles um, um, as opposed to repeating rifles. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's thinking about sort of the, the classic, you know, sort of long rifle um, that could be used one shot but sort of hard to manage from horseback, difficult yeah. to reload, and so on, um, and so he argues instead, or he has his realization instead that the six shooter changes everything because you've got obviously six shots; it's a repeating weapon. Um, but also, maybe more importantly, it can be wielded a more effectively from horseback in combat with Plains Indians. So Webb, in that moment, says he has this aha moment where he's like, "It's not the rifle, um, uh, the long gun that wins the West. It's the uh, it's the." Six shooter. And then he says that other realizations quickly followed. Now, whether it was that evening, as he claims, or mm-hmm. maybe a little later on, um, but that realization about the environment of the plane, about, about an innovation that allowed Anglos to conquer the plains, And it, there's no doubt the six shooter is critical. And I've yeah. written a book about the Texas Rangers in part, okay. and there's no doubt that the six-shooter changes the calculus on the battlefield um, for Anglo-Texans um, against uh, the Comanche and the Kiowa, that yeah. it's a really, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a thunderbolt. Um, but Webb sort of from that deduces that there are other sort of inventions that are kind of um, inspired by the plains environment, and Again, I really want to emphasize that web yeah. really is, in many ways, I think properly styled. An environmental historian of sorts, very much um, so. Yeah. And those other two, uh, and there are others, but the other two major ones are barbed wire, which, of course, is critical because you you don't have a lot of timber. Um, you know, barbed wire. Uh, you you need a lot less timber to. You sort of construct fence posts. You don't have a, a fence made entirely out of wood, but you just have fence posts that are spaced. And I should know this, but I don't. Is it 10 feet apart, 15 feet apart, but strung with three or four strands of barbed wire? Yeah. That changes everything. Yeah. And then, of course, the windmill allows uh, farmers to um, you know, draw subsurface water um, in a land that is otherwise arid. So Webb argues that it's the planes that sort of inspires the invention of these, um, uh, you know, these instruments, which make it possible for Anglos not only to live, but to thrive and to conquer the plains. Mm-hmm. I will say quickly, and we can speak further about this or not, as, as you like, that one of the things pointed out in a withering critique of the book that comes later is that none of those inventions are actually pioneered um, on the Great Plains. That's they right. all yeah. come uh, from the East, <laughs> which is something that one of his sort of fiercest critics uses to, to really question yeah. um, the fundamental insight of Webb's book.
0: Yeah. Well, Sam Colt, uh, he's somewhere in the East, right? I mean— He's actually, when he actually,
1: when he dreams up, um, and this is from the recent biography. I'm blanking on the name of the author. There's a good recent biography of Colt. Okay. Uh, he actually dreams it up at sea. Oh, um, that's right. He's actually, you know, actually, you know yeah. on board an ocean-going vessel. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's like a decade before right. Anglo's really show up on the plane. So, you know, barbed wire is Joseph Glidden. Um, you know, and it, it's yeah. invented in 1873. Although, of course, the competition to patent it is great, and there are many right. other designs. But yep. I think it's an 1873 patent, and it's in Illinois on the prairies, not mm. on the plains. And, you know, early American windmills are found in New England. Yeah. They're not created, uh, you know, in Nebraska or in Texas or wherever else. Right. So it's Im- they're imported. They are uniquely helpful in permitting Anglo settlement on the plains, right. but they are not um, sort of derivative of the plains environment, which right. is a key point that Webb makes, which, which which I think he's wrong about.
0: Yeah. One could uh, say that, well, it might be invented elsewhere, but it's. Um... Common use really hits its stride due to the demand that uh, the plane's environment uh, brings about.
1: Yes, and I think that's ultimately a point that Webb concedes in this yeah. sort of fascinating showdown um, with um, uh, uh, with a, a sort of a, a fellow historian named Fred Shannon, who is commissioned to write you know kind of a critique of the book, and mm-hmm. then they had that featured at a meeting of the Social Sciences Research Council. And I can get into that story if you like or not, mm-hmm. but it's just it's a hundred and nine page critique of oh Webb's gosh. book. It's a fifth as long <laughs> as Webb's book itself, uh, and that is absolutely. Absolutely, one of the points that Shannon makes um, in terms of uh, conceptual limitation
0: yeah. uh, in the
1: Great Plains, as yeah. as um, as written by Webb.
0: Right. Well, it, his book is ninety years old. I'm sure there's um, a lot of um, critique of it in the time since. But uh, indeed, um, that argument, I guess, helps us get closer to uh, a sharper understanding of the past. Right to have that have that argument continue.
1: With, sort of without doubt so yeah. I would say that um, although I think webb uh, so I think one of the sort of most important intellectual criticisms of the book is it is it really is environmentally de- determined yeah. um, you know webb argues that it's the environment of the plains um, that produces the you know, sort of these inventions um, that creates the shape of the Anglo-American civilization uh, that sort of develops and then ultimately thrives there. Um, you know, nowhere is there any room for contingency. This is a totally structural argument. Yes. Nowhere is there any room for culture. Um, and you know, these are certainly a points that you know, were raised even at the time in the 1930s by Fred Shannon, but have certainly been seized upon by other people in the time since. Mm -hmm. I think the timeless observation that Webb makes is that aridity really is the defining feature of the plains, Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, constitute a huge portion of the West. But aridity is a common feature of many other parts of the West as well, and that in terms of thinking about the West as a region, as a place, as opposed to the more process-oriented vision that it held sway for so long – And to a certain degree, still does with Frederick Jackson Turner. Mm -hmm. You know, as Elliot West says, you know, after you read Webb, um, you really can point to a map and say this is where the West begins. It's a little harder to decide necessarily where it ends because, of course, you've got places like in the Pacific Northwest or Hawaii. If you include Hawaii in the West, which I do, that that don't fit in terms of their rainfall. But, but as an interpretation of a big, big, big chunk of the West as a region that we would recognize today, mm-hmm. the Trans-Mississippi, Trans-Missouri West, you know, Webb's right. He really yeah. is. The aridity really is the defining feature that is how uh, I think that you can sort of delimit the West as a discrete region, right. and that is an idea that absolutely comes out of the Great Plains that he refines throughout his career, and like I said, may receive briefest but fullest expression in this 1957 Harper's piece, which um, okay. again, for a lot of people, is sort of shorthand for 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 re, for trying to understand or grapple with the main insight of this much larger
0: 500-page book. Yeah. Well, before we go into the the 100th and 98th meridian um, kind of line, I would like to, uh, mm-hmm. one of the thing that uh, certainly in West River, South Dakota, the, the ranches and cattle movement and so forth, the cattle drives, there's a, a, a lovely museum in Spearfish that um, kind of uh, gets into the cattle drive movement that um, uh, kind of skirted or or... Uh, Western South Dakota and Central South Dakota participated in, and it's one of the few things that uh, goes at, at Webb points out, right angles, I think, to the railroads building west, to the travel, the um, Oregon Trail, all this kind of east to west movement, the cattle movement, the cattle drives are north-south, right as uh, the recent program, 1883, might um, uh, remind us uh, in its own way.
1: Which I need to watch. Um, I'm all caught up on Yellowstone, which oh, maybe I okay. should be embarrassed to admit that I love, <laughs> but everybody tells me if you like Yellowstone, you'll love 1883, so it's on It's on my list after okay. I finish watching um, The Old Man with Jeff Bridges. But at any rate, I don't want to digress too far. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, well, it starts out—I mean, the the spine of the, of the show is their movement from Fort Worth on a cattle drive, and they're taking a, a group of immigrants to Oregon country, and it doesn't mm. quite— doesn't quite compute with where I would think immigrants would land to begin their journey to Oregon country. But nevertheless, that's the 1883 convention of uh, – or depiction of that. And it is, a, it is an interesting show as it deals with um, the Kiowa, the Comanche, the, the Lakota are in it toward the end of the movement as they get further north. And um, there's a few things that are kind of hokey, but I think on the whole – it's a good show. One of the things that the uh, 1883 does point out is the, is the six-shooter uh, mm. saves their lives in a lot of uh, cases as opposed to rifles on horseback as they right. uh, move. But what is barbed wire, getting back to the cattle movement and so forth, how does barbed wire impact these cattle drives? It, um
1: well it basically puts an end to them. Yeah. Um so I'll I'll start at the sort of the, the, the front end of the story and we'll we'll maybe end up with, with barbed wire. And I should say sure. that um sort of the the era of the cattle drive, I think if there's if maybe the book has there are a couple of places where you can just tell that Webb is particularly enamored. Um, I think Plains Indians, particularly the Comanche and the Kiowa, one place where uh, you can just feel his enthusiasm, mm-hmm. and I think another is uh, uh, sort of writing about um, about the cow drive, about cowboys. He's fascinated. Um, in fact, he argues, um, you know, that uh, that sort of the only distinctly only distinct form of American literature is the literature of the cattle drive. Mm. I don't think that's a supportable argument myself, <laughs> but that is just how much Webb thinks yeah. that um, that really brief period, you know, from the yeah, end of the uh, 1860s, you know, to the 1880s, um, Webb ascribes enormous importance to that. And of course, plenty of historians have as well. I think it's you know thought to be the largest um, sort of uh, sort of animal forced animal migration in you know in, in 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 world history. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, you're right. So, um, you know, these cattle drives really begin in Texas after the Civil War. because you've got a population of longhorns that are basically left in you know, the Texas system of ranching as to turn them out and, you know, sort of let them forage on their own and, and round them up in the spring and the fall. Um, and then ultimately, after the Civil War, you know, because they've been bottled up, those cattle have been bottled up, they hadn't been able to drive them to market, say, in New Orleans. that um, you have all these ex-Confederates, these young ex-Confederates, these cowboys, um, uh, who were men who become cowboys, uh, who come back to Texas in need of work. There are all these longhorns um, that are... Basically, you know, part of the public domain, effectively, mm-hmm. um, even if Texas itself doesn't have much in the way of public land, but the, but the cattle are basically unclaimed. Um, start driving them north, uh, you know, eventually to, to railheads in um, in that begin to sort of stretch across the plains which is really critical in the 1860s. Further and further west, um, you know, in in Kansas, um, sort of to then be shipped. Um, I think originally to sort of the prairies of Iowa and Illinois to be fattened there, and then ultimately on uh, to uh, slaughterhouses in, um, in Chicago. Uh, you know, that, that system, again, it's, it's such a brief moment considering how um, many books and articles and right. movies have devoted themselves to this period in American history. I agree. I find it absolutely fascinating myself. I really do. I can't tell exactly how I feel about that, but maybe it's just in my blood as a Texan. Mm-hmm. Um, but has really ended, uh, as this, um, sort of, uh, this Texas system, um, kind of reaches, you know, all the way up to places like Wyoming and Montana that are a lot less hospitable in terms of climatic conditions. Um, um, and so you've got these animals that are turned out on the range to forage and such, um, you know, and they they really suffer during uh, you know during inclement weather.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and as uh, barbed wire uh, makes its appearance starting in the 1870s, and the, the benefit of barbed wire, of course, is that you can either you know you can fence your animals in, or you can fence if you're a farmer animals out. Right. And so as barbed wire sort of also makes its way up the plains um, and sort of insinuated into the into the range cattle uh, sort of era um, that you have, you know, very famously the you know the that great you know die up when um, a, br- a brutal summer is followed by a, you know, a really early and, and particularly vicious winter, and you have all of these animals um, that uh, that die, um, that perish along fence lines because they're unable to get to grass yeah. you know, and water that is just out of reach. And yeah. So that really does end... The era of sort of open range cattle, um, sort of ranching, yeah. and that thereafter, uh, I think it's Granville Stewart who says pretty famously that he would never again own another animal that he could not f- feed and shelter, and so that really is what changes the industry in mm. the 1880s. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but barbed wire has a, you know, um, um, you know, just a huge impact, ultimately in transforming the plains. But prior to that, of course, you know, um, you have to have the, you know, the ecological space opened up for cattle by the, you know, near extermination of the bison, and mm-hmm. of course the confinement of native peoples to reservations. So, you know, it is, it is a layered story, yeah. a complicated one, kind of and, and one. You know, Webb gets a lot of it right, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, but you know, not nearly as full a rendering as, as many other historians have given, because it's just one, you know, a couple of chapters in a, in a much bigger book, whereas it's the subject of many other books
0: on right. its own. Right. Well, let's let's shift a little bit. You mentioned aridity a couple of times, and the meridian. You know, in South Dakota, we have we often talk about East River and West River, and the river uh, yes. I have a South Dakota as a graduate student. I learned okay. that. Yes, yes. Uh, there's this uh, the 98th meridian, hundredth meridian argument is an interesting one. We, we slap the river there instead many times. I think in popular, I've seen T-shirts in South Dakota with this East River, West River, kind of rivalry and so forth. How does that? Um, what's Webb's argument there about the ninety eighth meridian and the hundredth meridian as kind of being the center? Of the well
1: webb really he identifies the 98th as like um uh, like this shatter belt almost he, that's the, that' that's where he sees yeah. um, you know. From all of his research, and you know, one of the things I really do admire about the book is that it's truly interdisciplinary. I mean, Webb worked across any number of disciplines. I mean, in the the, the opening chapters of that, you know, where he really does deal with geologic time, um, are really I uh, um, I don't know how they would stand up as read by a modern geographer, but I think that it's certainly was state of the art for the time. Um, and so, what Webb determined was it's really beyond the ninety eighth meridian as you head west. That um, uh, that rain falls below twenty inches per year annually. Of course, who knows what you know those numbers look like now in this era of climate change? Maybe we still get the same total, but it's just not. Even, it doesn't fall evenly any longer. But he saw that as really kind of a, a, a as a, as a as a you know as a breaking point in many ways. That it's beyond the ninety eighth meridian. That these institutions um, or these uh, these institutions, yes. But also, sort of, you know, everything that they brought with them, that these Easterners who were emerging, as I mean, he writes about it in a really dramatic, kind of imagined fashion that you've got people who are kind of poking their heads out from uh, that. Sort of unbroken expanse of forested land um, east of the Mississippi. You know, nearly one third of the of the continent. Mm-hmm. That as they emerge from this timbered, watered country onto the Great Plains, which he sees again as beginning at or around the ninety eighth parallel, that everything changes, and they realize that the institutions um, and the inventions that allowed them to flourish in the East, the canoe. Um, or, uh, you know, what else does he offer, or the axe, or, um, you know, or the rifle, that those implements were just a lot less useful on the plains, and that it is sort of the ingenious adaptation, because it, it's an adaptation rather than an invention, mm-hmm. um, but the ingenious adaptation of Anglo-American culture, which he celebrates unabashedly, right. is, the, um, is, the, is the, the, the use of these instruments um, to create the space, um, you know, quite literally to condition the space for the occupation of um, of Anglo-Americans who in the decades before had basically hurried across the plains, a point that Elliot West makes so brilliantly in his book, The Contested Plains, that people are basically rushing across the plains until they finally decide, you know, particularly in the era, you know, in the 1850s, especially in the 1860s, that it's a place that's actually worth sort of sinking roots. Mm -hmm. um, That's made possible by railroads, Homestead Act, and so on, by a real federal largesse. But, But for a while, it's a place to be hurried across. But Webb is really interested about what happens when it becomes a place that can actually be inhabited. Right. Um, and he, again, says that the institutions and the old ways of thinking in the East simply were unsuited um, to, the, to the land, to the environment beyond the 98th meridian.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you brought up the Homestead Act, and that's kind of where I was going next. The federal mm. response to all this, you know, that passes in 1862, right? And then we spin yep. out of the Civil War. Yep. And how much does 120 acres get you in western Nebraska? Or western South Dakota, right, or even team. eastern
1: Nebraska, for that matter. Yeah, so yeah. you know, the, the Homestead Act—it's absolutely fascinating moment in American history. And I should say, as somebody who lived for a time in Nebraska, the Homestead National Monument, in right. the south of Lincoln, and yep. Beatrice. Yep. Um, I think his name is Daniel Freeman, which is just unbelievable. That would be the name of the <laughs> of the first Homestead patent. Um, wow! But at any rate, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know that's the idea is to is to populate this region right. um, by uh, by basically giving away uh, you know free land um, uh, to people who would you know agree to settle on it. Um, and to make modest improvements, um, and you know that is it's, it's a sort of it's a seminal moment in American history. But of course, as so many historians have told us, it doesn't work out quite so well because you know the the, the very same time that the Homestead Act is passed within I think a few weeks, and the Pacific Railway Act is passed. And there's an enormous giveaway to the railroads. They have this checkerboard pattern, and so you know if your homestead isn't located near a railroad, um, you're going to have you know no access to markets right. and therefore um, no real ability to produce anything other than maybe the most meager subsistence. The idea to become a commercial farmer, this isn't possible mm-hmm. unless you own land near the railroads, which, of course, are worth a lot more and cost a lot more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the Homestead Act in many ways is, I think, uh, and it's, again, I think there are ways in which it's um, uh, there's plenty of strategy going on as well in trying to populate the, the, sort of the midsection of the country mm-hmm. um, with, with Anglo-Americans, particularly those who would be loyal to the Union. It's not a coincidence the Homestead Act is passed, um, and the Pacific Railway and the Timber and Stone Act, after the Confederacy um, has been established, and the South is no longer an obstacle
0: in Congress. Right, they're not, not it, voting now. But it, no. it's,
1: got a, it's yeah. got a really mixed legacy, the Homestead Act <laughs> does.
0: Right. Well, it sets up the tension though between certainly, a, say, a typical homesteader, Mister Freeman, and the federal government, with with yeah. all the other activities the federal government is doing, and and so you have um, kind of the maybe the Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer uh, set out there to be independent, but the reality is in many ways they they still need support in important ways, and the federal government is the person that or the entity to do that or not, uh, depending right. on.
1: Right, and you're right. The amount of land that Mm -hmm. is awarded to homesteaders is uh, based on the experience of farmers in the East, which, of course, as Webb tells us over and over again, is so different in terms of the land itself, um, the availability of water and rainfall. Uh, And availability of timber, for that matter, and so um, you know those 120 acres uh, or 160 acres do a lot less for you um, uh, in terms of being able to farm successfully uh, on the Great Plains than they do in um, in you know in the Ohio Valley, for instance, or in upstate New York, or you know in many other places um, you know east of the Mississippi River. So. It is for many people. It is it is a heartbreak. It seems like begins as an opportunity, but ends, you know, in in, in failure. Such that you know there are counties. Um, you know, Frederick Jackson Turner bases his uh, argument. In um, uh, sort of on this definition of the frontier on the population per square mile and you know by the Mm -hmm. time based on the 1890 census I'm sure you know all of this um, and many of your listeners as well but based on the 1890 census the frontier closed because every county in America had um, reached this particular population threshold per square mile well you know in the late 19th and early 20th century um, you had the frontier reopening at least according to Turner's definition as uh, the these areas are are depopulated because these farms fail Mm -hmm. because of their insufficient size, because of, um, because of drought, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because of inaccessibility to markets and so on. Um, so again, it's a a fascinating story, but it's one that for many homesteaders is, you know, is, is is a really painful one.
0: Yeah. Well, one last question I think, and then we probably ought to sign off, but, uh, what does is, what is the Great Plains mean to the rest of the country? What is, if you're sitting in Boston or Miami, what's the impact on American history of this region?
1: Well, that's a great question. I'm trying to decide how to dig in. Well, I would say that I think, um, I don't say this defensively, um, I think a lot of folks Uh, we automatically think of it as maybe the definition of flyover country. You know, um, know, how many people do I know said, oh, sure, I've been to Nebraska. I drove through on Interstate 80, which, of course, connects, you know, basically New York City to San Francisco with plenty in between, of course. (laughs) So I think that's the popular idea in some ways is that – it's um, it's a land of nothingness. I'll, I'll I'll give you another example. Late in the final season of Friends, I'm dating myself here. Yeah. Uh, there's a moment where 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 Monica and Chandler um, are about to be relocated to Tulsa, and they both treat oh, that right. as if it's being sent to, you know, truly to the end of the earth. just yeah. to, Hills is a great city. Yeah. Um, they could have picked many other less desirable places on the plains, but again, I mean, I don't want to, to stand in too much for this, but I do think it's representative of the way that a lot of folks look at the Great Plains as um, as a place to be hurried over, as opposed to a place to actually be considered. Um, but I think it's got an incredibly rich and important history. Um, obviously, uh, it has served the nation as in different times as breadbasket sure. grows a huge proportion um you know of our uh, you know of our crops of our corn and our wheat particularly now at significant environmental cost as the dust bowl taught us um and of course uh you know the 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 need um, the ability to grow crops on the Plains depends to an enormous degree on center pivot, agri- uh, center pivot irrigation, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, relies on fossil fuels because you have to be able to pump water out of the Oglala Aquifer um, to be able to squirt it on fields in Kansas or Nebraska right. or, or, or wherever else. Um, but I think the Plains absolutely represent that to America as well as, as a, you know, a breadbasket of sorts. And, and there's, there's really some truth in that. And those are not, of course, the only crops that are grown there. I think, and now I'm going to kind of fudge a bit and sort of use the term Midwest. I don't know exactly how I feel about that when applied to the Great Plains. But there's a really wonderful book by a historian at the University of Illinois named Kristen Hoganson. Um, uh, oh, Heartland is in the title, um, but but she makes the uh, you know the 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 argument that um, that this part of the of the country of the continent, and of course, hers bleeds you know as far yeah. east as you know as Illinois, um, which I think of as kind of plains adjacent, but she 's really speaking about the vast continental midsection that's kind of seen as the repository of a particular American virtue, um, and I think that idea still exists there's a disdain as that friend 's example gives you that you know the people who live here yeah. are somehow a little bit out of time um, uh, or not, you know, totally with the times, but at the, in the same moment, in the same breath or, you know, or an alternating breath, there's a way in which, you know, there's, there's a way in which this area has been romanticized, um, dipped in a certain kind of amber, certainly for, you know, in terms of white America, I would say. Um, and, you know, and thought of as, as, like I said, this particular repository of, 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 of virtue, uh, an example of this might be, you know, and I, I Written a little bit about this elsewhere. Um, if you remember the, you know, the, I think it was the NBC News catchphrase after the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, I can still hear Tom Brokaw's voice terror in the heartland. Um, yeah. The idea that such things don't happen here, that um, this is sort of the safe, Comfortable, virtuous, and middle, right. and those bad things happen to people you know on the coasts or you mm-hmm. know or or wherever so I think it's a it's a very strange um you know almost patronizing uh relationship or conception of the region from folks who live elsewhere, which right. is that um it's it's it, it's virtuous but it's really boring and maybe kind of insignificant right. even though i have to say i find it anything but i think the plains are right. absolutely fascinating right. i think that north and south dakota are um breathtakingly beautiful in parts the sand hills of Western Nebraska. Absolutely gorgeous. One of the most sort of, you know, kind of remote, I forget which one of the cell phone companies, maybe it's T-Mobile. Um, one of them sort of flashes up and then they're they're bragging on it, sort of on sort of their coverage map, but there's a big sort of black hole in the middle, which is sort of Western Nebraska. It is absolutely noticeable. Western Nebraska is the most uncovered part of this particular, you know, cellular network. Network. Um, but it's beautiful, and it's yeah. fascinating, yeah. and its history is utterly compelling, yeah. whether it's you know, the history of the Native peoples who lived here, um, or the great contest for the space in the mid-late 19th century, or right. the era of the cattle drives, or the environmental lessons that are taught to us um, from the Dust Bowl, or you know the current activism um, right now in South Dakota over the Dakota Access Pipeline. It matters a yeah. lot more yeah. than my good friends in San Francisco or Washington. Washington or New York might be might yeah. be willing to admit.
0: Well, it's it's uh, ironic that you quote Tom Brokaw. He grew up in South Dakota. I so. know he did.
1: And yeah. I love that. And I think yeah. I've heard the story whether or not it's true, but that like in that heyday of those sort of big three broadcast networks, mm-hmm. um, you know, the people they went after uh, sort of to serve as anchors, obviously all white men at that time, mm-hmm. um, sort of had these kind of middle American accents. Dan rather, I believe, as a Texan, is Walter yeah. Cronkite a Texan, Tom Brokaw from South Dakota. Yeah. I think there's a way again in which that sort of fits this idea um at least for many people um of you know kind of this kind of default uh default normalized yeah. sort of white Americanness yeah. um even if Chandra and Monica would <laughs> do anything not to actually live here
0: right. Well, it is it is culture producing in many ways, but yes, it, uh, the culture it is replicated may have moved on from there. Yes, ways, so.
1: I think that's I think yeah. that's absolutely so. But remains vital, fascinating, must be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I feel really lucky to be a historian of the region. I'm a mm-hmm. proud historian of the Great Plains. I'm a proud resident of the Great Plains, um, Dallas, Texas, sort of close to its southern terminus, but yeah. absolutely part of the ecosystem, and I'm yeah.
0: proud of that. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thanks for the conversation and thanks for uh, supporting and promoting uh, the book today and and getting it republished in the first place. I think it's – despite its 500 pages, it is a good read. It it moves along. The text really moves along and I think uh, readers will enjoy what they have to tell us or what uh, Mr. Webb has to tell us from 1931. Well, thank
1: you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, and always fun to talk to somebody in uh, in, in South Dakota, a truly beautiful state, what I've seen of it.
0: Great, thanks. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.